Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 350. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 350 you're listening to. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I have a smile on my face as I say that. 350. That is a lot of episodes over a number of years, and that is a ton of knowledge shared by some amazing people. Being that it's a 350th show, it is a milestone, and For a milestone episode, you really got to have somebody on, in my mind, that's not only a marquee guest, but somebody who just really exudes knowledge and shares that knowledge with the audience. So I'm happy to say my guest today is Leslie Brathwaite, who's known for his work with Beyonce, Pharrell Williams, Jay-Z, Cardi B, Rick Ross, T-Pain, Lil Wayne. I could just go on and on and on and on. The list is pretty big of the people he's worked with. He actually was a recommendation that I stumbled upon in the list. If you follow the show, you know that there is a uh, a place you can go on the website. You can make a suggestion. It shows up in a big spreadsheet for me, and I could see who recommended the person and when they recommended them. And I was going through one day, just kind of scanning through the list, and I see former WCA guest Mark Kilborn's name. Mark recommended Leslie a long time ago, and I didn't see that for the longest time. Finally, it it occurred to me, oh my gosh, this guy has a killer resume, and Mark speaks so highly of him, I've got to get him on. Took a little while to get him on because we just had some scheduling conflicts between us, but we figured it out and persisted, and man, I cannot wait for you to hear this interview. Leslie really brings it here, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So, very happy to say here for episode number 350, Leslie Brathwaite, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to remind you about the importance of habits. Now, I'm not trying to make a joke here, but seriously, I know it's this is a habit of mine to come back to this topic, and I have many times over the years talked about it. And of course, I always keep coming back to the book, Atomic Habits, which I will, of course, put a link in the show notes for you to check out. But the reason I keep coming back to it is because it is important. If your habits become routine, they greatly affect the outcome of your life. Years ago, before I started the podcast, my habits were not the best. And we don't have to go into all of them, but essentially, you know, bad money habits, social media habits, things that were not in my best interest or my family's best interest. So I started the podcast and my habits started to change. Number one, I gave myself the responsibility of producing a show on a regular basis. That's probably the leading habit that led to all the other good habits. Over time, as you build up these good habits, as you all know, years down the road, your outcome of your life is very different. And I've often talked about this very thing where if you have a ship on the water and it's moving forward, 
if you shift it just a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, where that ship ends up is very different from where it would have ended up had it gone on the same path. It's the same with your life. You change some key things, your life is gonna turn out vastly different. I'm happy to say that the habit changes I have implemented in my own life, looking back seven years, I'm in a vastly different spot. A lot of great things have come about focusing on habits that lead to, you know, better family life, better career life, habits that open doors, habits that make me a happier person. I mean, it just, it goes on and on and on and I could go on forever about it. This habit thing is crucial. I do want to hammer this home. I really want to make an impact with you on this. And I'm serious. I really, really ask all of you to make some habit changes in your life that are for the positive. And when I say habit, I mean, I want you to make it a part of your routine. Little things that will change the course of the ship of your life, right? Mr. Analogy here. And I want you to, five years time from now, I want you to reflect back on those habits that you implemented. And they could cover a range of things. You know, we could get into uh, substance abuse changes. We could get into financial changes, how you deal with your money how you deal with networking, how you deal with people, how you deal with your family. All of these things are possibilities of things that you could change your habits over. And I assure you with great certainty, if you change those habits, they will lead to other things changing in your life for the better. And in five years time, I bet you, you can look back and say, he was right. I changed some things and things really turned out differently for me had I kept going on the same path. It's very easy to get complacent in life. Maybe you got a job that, you know, just covers the bills and you're just kind of coasting and maybe you come home and you work on audio at night and you'd like to make it more of your profession, but you know, the job's pretty cozy and you can kick back and have a beer on the couch at the end of the day and watch TV. And if that's what you want, that's totally cool. But if that's not what you want, Start looking at the habits in your life and see if you can change those around and see if you can turn that situation over. And maybe the job becomes less important and your audio career takes off and that becomes your gig. Of course, that's one of many possibilities and examples. You are the one that has to figure this out. I can't do it for you and nobody else can do it for you. You are your own advocate. So get in there and see what happens. What's the worst that could happen, right? So there it is. Get into some good habits, change your trajectory, and see where that leads you. And who knows what doors will open as a result of your habit changes. That's my rant. Thank you for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Leslie Brathwaite, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. It's great to have you here. Uh, great to be here. You came as a recommendation from our mutual friend, Mr. Mark Kilborn. Yep. Mark Kilborn living off in Kilbornia. <laughs> <laughs> That's my guy. I love that guy. Glad to have you here. Let's get started. You grew up originally in St. Thomas. Is that right? Yes. St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. 
you got to school me on this. What is it like to grow up on an island like that? I assume it's somewhat similar to the, someone who would grow up on a Hawaiian island, of course. Yeah, I mean, um, culturally, what you get is a nice blend of island culture. And then also, it's still very, because they're the U.S. Virgin Islands, it's still very embedded in the U.S. culture. So it's a nice mix of both. There's a, a tropical island vibe to it and, and certain cultural pieces that came from the original owners of the islands, the Danish. So it's, there are some Danish influences throughout the islands and the history but like I said, it's very Americanized in a, in a sense, too, because they are the U.S. Virgin Islands. So we, you know, when we're born, we're citizens, we're U.S. citizens, we're a territory of the U.S. So we're citizens. The only major difference in the technical part of it is if we live on the island or on the islands, St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John, we do not get to vote for the president. If we do become residents, like now I'm a resident of Georgia, I've lived in Georgia since 1993. But when you're a resident of any of the major 50, if you're a resident of any state, you do get to vote for the president. But if I were living in the Virgin Islands currently, I wouldn't get to vote for the president. Isn't it like that for Puerto Rico as well? Yes. Okay. Um, same thing. Okay. Yep. Does that seem a little unfair to you? Not really. I would imagine, I'm not as versed in politics as other people, but I would imagine it has something to do with the fact that because we're a territory, there is some kind of gray area and leeway in certain things as far as like lower income taxes and all, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. So I, I feel like there's some kind of trade-off as to why that is. Mm. I'm sure there's a there's a technical reason for it, but no, I mean... To perfectly fine. I've I've never heard a culture of people complaining about it when I was a kid, when I was a young adult. And musically, there's there's a, the extra influence of calypso music. I would assume Absolutely. on an island like that, calypso, reggae, and then there's different brands of or of sectors of calypso. There's soca music. There's the up tempo calypso, very heavily influenced in reggae and calypso. First artist that probably was responsible for me falling in love with music was Bob Marley. Huh. And so you just had a very heavy presence of Calypso and reggae. But interestingly enough, in my child, I was born in 1973. And a few years later, hip hop really started permeating throughout the world. Hip hop was actually born, fun fact, hip hop was born in the same year I was born. Oh. DJ Cool Herc and uh, DJ Coke LaRock are credited with being the birth parents, if you will, of hip hop that started in a party in August. I think the date just went by, August 11th, I believe it was. And so I was born in April of 1973. So yeah, I was born the same year as hip hop. So that was, that was really embedded into my musical culture from a young age. I got a hold of hip hop and would listen to it on various stations and watch it on various TV stations and just got hooked immediately. So my three realms of music initially were Calypso, reggae, and hip-hop. I'm to understand that at festivals on the island, you were more enamored by the gear that was being used to make the music and your attention yeah. was driven towards that as opposed to the the bands themselves or the spectacle going on in front of you with dancing and yeah, Music. it was a carnival celebration. Typically, any, most, uh, most Caribbean islands have a very similar setup where it's a carnival celebration. They usually have a couple days of parades. 
they have food fairs and all this stuff and a lot of different parties in the street where you would see these setups where people would put a bunch of equipment on a flatbed. They would have speakers all around the either on the back and the front or sometimes even around the sides of the flatbed so that the sound can get out. They would drive the truck slowly down the street that people can dance and follow the truck or they would park in a huge parking lot and just jam out. And so all this gear would be in the middle of the truck. They would have, you know, that's where I got familiar with like drum machines because they, they would use the drum machines to make the calypso rhythms and keep the rhythm going. They would keep like one beat going, kind of like jam band style. Like they would keep one beat going and just play a bunch of different songs over that beat. And so I was more so focused on the guy who ran the, the drum machines because he was also the guy that was mixing the sound. So he would run the drum machines, mix the sound. And I was just, I was fascinated with that whole world. And I, you know, learned about the Roland 808s and the 707s and the Alesis HR16s. And I knew all the <laughs> names of the drum machines. And I hung around those guys so much. There was one particular band that was pretty much the dominant band in St. Thomas. And they were well known throughout the Caribbean. And I would hang out with this band. The original name of the band was Eddie and the Movements, but their dub name or their street name was the Jam Band. And so I would hang out with them. I would always be on their trucks. I would sit on the trucks, look at the gear, look at stuff to the point where those guys got so familiar with seeing me every time. And then it, it turned into, hey, you want to help out carrying some cables from my car to the truck? Or you know, I got to know the guys. And before you know it, I was almost like one of the guys. I would just show up. I knew where they would be at. No money. I would just show up and ask them if I could help them wrap the cables up or ask them if I could help plug up the drum machines because I knew where everything went. So I was always paying attention to when he would hook them up. And eventually that became my job. I would just hook up the drum machines, plug in all the audio, make sure everything's coming up. I'm checking the boards. And that was like, that was utopia for me. I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. I get to set up and sound check and I'm tapping on the drums and I can hear the, the woofers banging and it was so exciting for me as a kid, just helping those guys out. Got to know those guys. Those guys became like my first mentors. The lead singer of the band, his name was Nick Friday. He passed away about maybe 10 years ago. Hmm. And he kind of became like a mentor figure. He saw my interest in music. And they, I mean, a couple of the, the guy who ran the drum machines, uh, his name was Ambrose. He passed away not too long ago. And he bought me a couple of drum machines, gave them to me. Like he gave me a seven. I still have them to this day. I, Oh, they're on the other side of the screen. But my 707, my Korg DDD-1, he gave me a couple of drum machines. And then Nick hmm. Friday, he gave me a couple of amps and some speakers. And so it was just fun being around those guys and getting to learn the ins and outs. And I knew then that that was the thing that excited me. I knew being on that truck, looking at people hook up gear, playing with the amps, all that kind of stuff. That, that was the stuff that excited me. When did the act of recording come into your world where you actually could take these devices and put them down on tape? Well, you know, I, I had a very amateur, it was amateur hour for me when I was a kid. And, and even in all these interactions with the band and then through high school. So what I used to ask those guys, so I remember one day I went to um, Nick, the lead singer, and I said, hey, you guys don't record your live performances and people love this stuff. You should let me like hook up a cassette deck and record your live performances. 
And if it's cool, I want to sell them or give them away or whatever. I was trying to be careful of how I approach it, but he didn't. Island culture is different. It's like nobody cared. Everybody's easy living. It's like, whatever. Sure, hook up a cassette deck. Sure, you can sell them. Sell them for how much ever you want and keep the money. It's all good. Like, hmm. it wasn't about a music business back then. It was just, we're all having fun. And I became their conduit to like all the high school kids. So I became the guy who had the performance from last night on cassette that everybody wanted. And so I started this little business. Um, so my mom worked at the University of the Virgin Islands and I would be in her office doing my homework, da da da. So I started this business where I would make copies for the college kids. They would come in and want like a copy of a cassette or a copy of a mixtape that they made. And I would also sell these live jam band cassettes. And so I had a sign on the top of my mom's office. And, you know, back then we called cassettes like a copy of dub. So I had a sign on the top of my mom's office that said one dub 750. And I would charge $7.50 for like, if I, if you wanted me to copy a tape and give you a mixtape or whatever, or, or give you a copy of my recordings that I did live with the band. And that's actually the name of my company today. So the name of my company is Dub 750 Music. <laughs> so a lot of people always ask me, where does Dub 750, like when I send my invoices to the labels and the company they pay is Dub 750 Music. And a lot of the label execs always go like, what does that mean? What does Dub 750 mean? So I always explain. And then eventually the sign itself got damaged because of a hurricane. So only the Dub 750 part was there. And I kept that part and put it in my room. And so... Dub 750 was always the name in my brain. <laughs> that's funny. That's <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, so tell me about, eventually you left the island, obviously. Mm -hmm. Was that due to your ambitions or was that a family-oriented move? What was behind that? No, that was my ambition. So going through high school, at this point, it was clear to me that okay, music is something that I want to be in my life. This is going to be the center of my life. This is going to be what I hope to do for a living. I didn't know how to make that happen in high school. I didn't get mm. what the path was for that. And you got to remember, my mom worked at the University of the Virgin Islands. She's director of admissions. She's very into higher education, college, four-year college. She was the first in her family to go to college. So it was this natural thing in her brain, like, oh, you're going to go to college. And it didn't help that I made great grades in school. So it was almost kind of assumed, oh, you're going to college. So when I said to my mom, I used to go into my guidance counselor's office every day and I used to just be like, you know, I don't want to go to college. I don't want to go to a four-year college. I want to do something in music, but I don't know how to make that happen. And I would go in there every day and she would hear me and she knew, she knew that college wasn't a good fit for me. So one day she shows up, my guidance counselor shows up with this pamphlet. I'm walking, I had a long walk up a ramp to get to her office in high school. And so I'm walking up the ramp and I look up and I see her standing there. She has this two page pamphlet in her hand and she's smiling <laughs> ear to ear. And I'm like, uh oh, she found something. And I got excited and I'm starting to, you know, like run up the ramp. It's almost like a chariots of fire moment. Like, you, you know, and I'm running up the ramp and I get there and she flips it around and it says full sale center for the recording arts. And it had the plane logo and da da da. She was like, this is where you want to go. She handed it to me and I sat there and I read it and I was like, this is it. 
So I go home to my mom. I'm thinking I'm all excited. Okay, I found a place that actually secondary education, but it wasn't a university. It was it was still Full Sail Center for the Recording Arts. It wasn't Full Sail University yet. So my mom, she was kind of okay about the fact that it was an establishment that was teaching. She was not okay about the subject. Her thing was, well, music is a hobby. I mean, you got to remember, this is, you know, I graduated high school in 1991. So this is end of the 80s, early 90s. It's still not a cool thing to pursue the arts. It's, you know, she, you're going to ruin your life. You're going to be a starving artist. Music is not a real career. You got to be a doctor, lawyer, or architect. You know, that kind of mm-hmm. parental, they think it's good advice and good guidance. But it's, you know, for me, it wasn't. I didn't want to go to a four-year college and I wanted to do music and I felt like this was my path. And my mom just, she didn't buy into it. She hated the idea. She didn't like it. I got my dad and my mom and dad were divorced at the time. So I got my dad to take me to the orientation in Orlando. We flew up to do the whole, um, not orientation, but the open house Mm. to kind of see the campus, this whole thing, tour the campus. The minute I got there, I knew, I was like, this is where I belong. I was like, this is it. And so got back home. It's a lot of tension with my mom for the next few months. She just, she was not feeling the idea. She hated the fact that I wasn't going to college, but ultimately with a lot of kicking and screaming, she still understood that it was my life and my decision. So like I said, she went kicking and screaming. She was not happy about it, but I ended up going and you know, I got some student loans and all this stuff, and I packed my bags and went to Florida, to hmm. Orlando, by myself. No family, no nothing. Had a one-bedroom apartment right on the campus, of, off the campus of Full Sail, because they don't do housing. So you got to find an apartment. My dad came back up with me, helped me find the apartment, got a little $2,000 used Ford Escort. That was the worst little car ever, but it got me everywhere. So yeah. I was still grateful for it. And started at Full Sail. So when I got to Full Sail is when I really got exposed to what the real world of recording and mixing was. And I think in my early months at Full Sail is when I really developed a passion for mixing. When I realized, oh, this is the thing. It's the mixing. And, you know, after this much time having the success you've had in the quote-unquote music business, do you still feel that what Full Sail taught you then is what is actually the reality on the ground? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about technical stuff. And the beautiful thing is, and I always stress this with the younger generation, but the beautiful thing about my Full Sail education is my education was focused on the craft, not the gear. And I think that's where a lot of programs in schools kind of go a little wrong in a sense Mm -hmm. is or even just certificate programs or individuals who teach other individuals a lot of times they focus on the gear and what i've learned and i always tell my students or people that look up to me or mentees teach the craft learn the craft gear changes all the time but if you learn the craft you can apply it to whatever new gear comes along and so that's what i loved about my education it was it was focused on the craft of recording, the craft of mixing, signal flow, the concepts, how to solve a problem. Problem solving is huge in our world. 
and it's you know how to fix things how to i mean we had a, a studio maintenance course with one of the legendary instructors his name was hunter manning i mean and mark will tell you we sat there and soldered cables and figured out how to fix speakers and all this stuff but all that stuff still carries on to this day where when something doesn't work my default mode isn't to just call a repair person my default mode is to take it apart and figure it out so it's about learning the craft. And I think for me, that was the really big thing about my full sale education. And what was your first professional experience outside of the full sale environment in a real studio? As soon as I left full sale, first thing I did, I packed up. I read about Dallas Austin, this producer who, you know, went on to do ABC, Boys to Men, Madonna, TLC, Aretha Franklin. And I got to work on all those projects, but I'd heard of him because I knew about a couple of the records that he had put out, he had put out a couple of records on ABC, this young group of five kids. And I loved the records. And then I read an article that he was opening a studio in Atlanta and it timed up with when I was graduating. Like he opened a studio a month before I was graduating. So I was like, Ooh, I'm going to Atlanta. So I literally just graduated, packed my car, moved to Atlanta, stayed in a days in for like a week until I found the place, finally found the place. And went in there and I was an intern. So my first professional interaction with the music industry was going into a studio and intern. It's the sort of cliche story of I'm getting coffee. I'm going on food runs. And the exchange is I just get to be around and observe sessions. And much like the way I kind of infiltrated the jam band in the islands where I was just around and I was just offering my help. I didn't want anything from them. I never asked them for anything. It was, guys, this is fascinating to me. And if I could just carry cables and wrap cables and carry vinyl to the car, I will be more than happy. Because my thing was, what can I do for you that you would want me to stick around? And if you want me to stick around, I get to sit there and stare at the gear all day and, and, and learn. So it was a win-win. So it's hmm. the same mentality in the studio where... What can I do for you? What service can I provide? And all I ask in return is just let me be here and let me learn. And fun fact, the first person walking through the door first day, first person I went on a food run for, got her lunch. It was a salad from Lenox Mall here in Atlanta. It was a little salad place right on the side of the mall. It was Whitney Houston. Oh, a, man. Yeah, got a salad for Whitney Houston my first day in. And then fast forward some years later, I ended up being her engineer. I ended up recording songs for her. I, you know, so I worked with her on Babyface at wow. certain intervals. So, yeah. Wow. So it's, it's crazy how that all works out. Where do you think that mindset came from early on to just know that? I mean, how old were you at that time? 18. How did you have the wherewithal to know that that was the right thing to do? to be present and to offer that assistance, to be a service? You know, I think, it, I think it's a combination of places. I don't think there's any one specific place. I think it was, I mean, looking at my mom's work ethic, looking at my dad's, how he dealt with people. My dad, there's a lot of things I always learned from a lot of the adults in my life, but there was always something, and I think this is the thing that probably led to that. There was always something to me about and I, I think this is a concept that I just understood from a kid, which is very early on, I realized that a lot of people try to stand out in very major ways. And what I used to realize, even as a kid, is you can do the most subtle thing and stand out. 
And a lot of the blessings that came in my life came because I was providing a service. And I'll give you a, a quick example if, if you have time for it. Oh, I have story. all the time in the world for you. Yeah. Okay. So when I was a kid on the university campus, this had to be, I was maybe nine years old because I was in the fourth grade, nine, 10 years old. So our elementary school at the time was one of the first schools on the island to receive a computer. We got an Apple II. Hmm. And we would have this computer in our classroom because I was in the accelerated class. It was a class of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. We all had the same homeroom. We're just a class of nerds, basically. We just had great grades. We all did our work, that kind of thing. But we got little privileges like a computer in our class. So I learned pretty quickly how to use the computer. It's very much into computers and all the typical nerdy stuff that wasn't popular to be into back then. So on the college campus, they had an Apple II, and none of the college kids knew how to use it. They weren't really versed in it. They would walk by where the computer was stationed. So I would spend a lot of my summers and, and afternoons after school waiting on my mom to finish work, and she worked super late, so I would be there. But she always knew was where I was, especially in the summer times when I'd be just roam. I would roam the campus all day, and there was a beach right by the campus, so I'd be down on the beach. I would either be one of three places. I would be down on the beach, sitting, watching the planes because the airport was right next to the campus, or I'd be on the computer. And she knew where I was all the time. I would be on this computer. So fast forward, so I'm always on the computer. So one day I walk in to go use the computer and the president of the university is in there with the ladies who work in the office where the computer sat. And the president, his name is Dr. Kerwin. And, I, and he, he's actually one of the adults I can attribute to learning a lot of things from. And we can touch on that later as you ask me questions. So Dr. Kerwin was standing there and he was, he was a large figure. You, you knew he was the president of the university, but at yeah. the same time, he was the most down to earth, coolest guy ever. So they're all standing around the computer and he's like, okay, we got to get rid of it and we'll get a new computer because somehow a couple of college students had trashed the computer. So the computer wasn't working. And he just kind of was like, ah, let's just get a new computer. We got a budget for it. Whatever. We'll get the newer, later model, whatever. So I said, well, Dr. Curran, excuse me, if you don't mind, before you throw it out, can I have an opportunity to at least look at it and try to fix it? And he was like, sure. So he told the lady whose office was around and he said, get him whatever he needs and that's fine. So I sat there all day working on it, took it apart, figured out a couple of things. What had happened, I think what happened is they, they knocked it off the desk. And, you know, back then those computers are very delicate. The circuit boards came loose and all this stuff. So I fixed the computer. So the next day I go up to the computer room and they have a new computer in there. Mm. And so word got around to my mom, and I, I kind of was like, I looked at the new computer. It wasn't an Apple II. It was, a, um, I want to say, did they get the Lisa? I think it was a Lisa. Or so, it, was some, it was whatever the next generation of Apples were. So I was a little sketchy. So I was like, well, let me not touch the brand new computer yet. Let me figure out X, Y, and Z. I go back down to my mom's office, and my mom was really proud of me. And she was like, son, the word got around that you fixed the computer. I was like, but yeah, but they got rid of it. Like, I didn't think I fixed it because it's not there. The new computer is there. So we walk to the car and she opens the trunk mm -hmm. and it's the computer. <laughs> I knew where this and was going. Yeah. And she says, Dr. Kerwin said 
that he just appreciated your initiative and he wanted you to have it. Oh. And you got to remember, like you got to place this. This is an Apple II computer in 1983, 1984, somewhere around there. Oh yeah, we're close in age, so I I I know. So a ten-year-old kid getting an entire computer, yeah, it blew my mind. But it was Dr. Kerwin's way of saying, "You offered your service for free. You didn't. You just wanted to help." And we were going to buy the new computer anyway. So he gave me an opportunity to fix the computer, and then he gave it to me. And actually, that's the computer right there. Oh my God! Look at that. That's actually it. You hold yeah. on to things. Yeah, I, there's certain things that have sentimental value to me that, and it still works. Actually, it's funny during COVID, you know, like we're sitting around during COVID last year and it's like my wife rearranged the pantry. I rearranged the garage. Like we were just finding all kind of home projects to do because uh-huh. we're home all day. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to storage and start digging up my old gear and old computers and da da da. So during COVID last year, I dug that up, dusted it off, serviced everything, da da da, and I fired it up. And it works. And I was playing Oregon Trail and, you know, I still got all the old, the little floppy disk that's sitting right there. And yeah. And it still works 100%. <laughs> still works. Yeah. You fire that thing up and you hear that beep and you hear that, the little sound that it makes. And <laughs> but, I, but I now, I understand the point of you telling me that story and yes. where that emanates from and how that was put to use in your studio time. Yeah. So I understood very well from an early age that if I approach situations with a yes, with an authentic yes. It wasn't like I was trying to get anything. I just wanted to help. I wanted to be. I wanted, I love being around these things. And if, if me fixing that computer, this is how I was looking at it in my mind, which is if me fixing that computer somehow kind of earned me the right to be there every day, I was fine with that. Because there were days when I felt a little guilty, like I was the only one sitting on the computer all the time. And I would see a college student walk in and I would like quickly get up and try to like get them to sit down. And they would be like, no, you're good. Like, I don't know how to use that. Hmm. So I almost felt like I had to earn the privilege of sitting in front of this computer, getting to do whatever I wanted all day. So fixing it was my way of repaying. And then Dr. Kerwin goes, no, you can have it. So I, I just understood early on, it was always about extending yourself first. If you wanted to be a part of a situation, you had to give something. So that was my mentality, even with, like I said, with the jam band. I don't want to just ask those guys, show me how to hook all this stuff up. No, let me help you. Let me be of value to this situation so that you'd want to keep me around. You'd right. want to show me. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Now take me from getting salads for Whitney Houston to <laughs> getting an opportunity in the studio. Yeah, my opportunities came in, in small steps. So um, I always looked at, and I preach this to, to interns now and to guys coming up now. I always looked at every phase of what I was doing. And this I learned probably from Dr. Kerwin and my dad. I always looked at every single phase of what I was doing as the most important thing. Whatever's in front of me is the most important thing. So when I would go get salads for Whitney, that was the most important thing I was doing. I've got to make sure the salad is right. I've got to make sure she has her utensils and the napkin. And I had to do the whole package. And people noticed that. And it's funny because there are times when I've sent interns on runs, like they'll come back with the food and no utensils, no napkin. I'm like, and I had to sit him down and say, look, you're presenting me with food. Would you eat this without a fork? So why would you present it to somebody without a fork? You know, just simple concepts. And so because of that thing in my nature where I would like, I, I love wrapping gifts. That was like a thing of mine. Like I love Christmas, love wrapping gifts. I would spend an hour wrapping one gift because I wanted it to look perfect. And I wanted the tape to just be just right. And the corners had to be super sharp. And it had to fold. I, I wanted that thing to look like it was wrapped at Macy's <laughs> if I'm wrapping a gift. I was just that kind of person. I just want to do everything quality, everything right. And so I think that translated in how I was able to my trajectory in the studio, because everything I did, I took care. If, if you asked me to clean the bathrooms, that was going to be the cleanest bathroom you ever saw. And I, I took pride in those moments. I remember Dallas Austin going he came out of the bathroom one time and he was like, he said to his, like the president of the label at the time, he was like, yo, who cleaned the bathroom? That bathroom is spotless. And I was like in the corner somewhere going, yes. <laughs> yes. Like yeah, I, I loved, I took pride in everything I did. And I think people saw that and recognized that. And it translated in the things that did matter to them. So you would think, oh, a bathroom or going to get my salad is one thing and maybe trivial, but then, when I was asked to make a cassette copy, you know, back then we used to make cassette copies like mm. Dallas would come out, he would produce a song and then he would want a copy of the cassette to go play in his car. So we would have to copy it from that from the DAT machine to a cassette because he didn't have a DAT player in his car. I would make sure that would be the loudest, most booming. I had the levels just up right under distortion. I would probably get three cassettes and record at different levels to see where I'm distorting at. And then I would 
bump his down just a touch. So when he got in his car and he put in his cassettes, and it would be the same reaction, the same reaction of him walking into a bathroom and going, yo, who cleaned the bathroom? It's the same thing where he would come back in the next day, the first time I made him a cassette. And he was like, he was holding the cassette going, who made me this cassette? And I would be like, that would be me. He was like, you're always making my cassettes. So that's a, that's a mark for me. That's a, that was a marker. That was a, okay, I'm the cassette guy now. But then it translates to when the next position was open or when they needed an assistant to fill something. His mind now trains on, ooh, this guy is great at getting the FedExes out. This guy is great at cleaning the bathrooms. He, this guy has my cassette sounding amazing. Ooh, let's get Leslie in my sessions. I like him. I like this kid. That's how it pretty much went. That was pretty much the trajectory of it. Let me challenge that a little bit and ask you how you would deal with this because mm-hmm. I love what you're saying, but then I go to, okay, you're not always going to have the time to take the care that you're putting into the cassette, the bathroom, etc. So what do you do when that attention to detail and that wanting to do the best you can is met with the resistance of time crunch and chaos around you? And that is the that was the golden exactly what you laid out was the golden formula to keep moving forward. You have to figure out, okay, I can do this if I have all the time in the world. Now I gotta figure out how to manufacture this same product, the quality product, with less time. I gotta figure out now efficiency has to be into the equation. Hmm. So now I gotta figure out how to be the best, but quicker. And that was a big factor. And that was the big factor that landed me my first assistant gig. So nobody liked aligning the tape machines. Remember the old tape machines where, and the ones where you had to stick the screwdriver in and tweak each thing, tweak the meter till it gets to zero, next hole, tweak the meter. So I came up with a system. I became the guy who can align the tape machines the fastest. So exactly to your point, I realized that those two things had to somehow work together. I had to be good, but I had to be efficient. So what I did was, so you know the little screwdrivers that you stick in and you turn and you turn, da, da, da. I went and bought 24 of them. And then I put them all in the holes. Of course you did. Yeah, I went and bought 24 and I put them all in the holes. And then I had a piece of tape on the screwdriver where you put a piece of tape over it and it's flat out so it almost looked like a propeller. Uh Uh-huh. And I knew when I stuck it in the hold where each tape position would be based on where the screwdriver was. And I, I came up with a system to align the knobs to meet where the propeller would be, so to speak. And then I knew once I get to zero on the tones, I can just take my hands and go wham, 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 wham. Because that extra few seconds of taking the screwdriver out, putting it in under the hole, finding the groove, turning it. That actually took time. So when I've worked out my system, the tape machine looked like chaos. Like somebody looking at that would be like, what the f- like, what is this? Yeah. But I knew my system and I got it done the quickest. And I used to align tape machines in like a few minutes and people would be fascinated. So I learned that very thing that you, that, that your question addressed the very thing that I knew had to be a part of my equation, which is I got to learn how to do everything quicker. And that's even my style of mixing. 
there were guys that I remember Dallas used to walk through the studio complaining about how and and this is no disrespect to him. I he's one of the you know great mix engineers, but he would be like, "Oh my God, Dave Way is taking eight days to mix this record," or so and so, and and that was their style. So again, no disrespect to Dave Way or any of the greats. It wasn't that that was a a knock on them. That was the culture they came from. They came from a culture of you take a week to mix a song, mm. but we were dealing with this young new breed of producer that was super impatient. Teddy Riley was super impatient. Babyface, super impatient. They wanted everything microwaved right then, right then. So I figured out one of my key assets is going to be, I got to learn how to mix quick, but I also got to make sure the mixes are good. That's the thing. I got to figure out how to mix really well, but I got to do it quick. And I focused on that for a very early part of my career is how do I get these done quick? Let's not waste time. Let's get through these mixes. Let's don't, I don't have to spend eight hours listening to drums. Drums have to feel a certain way. Let's make them feel that way in 10 minutes. I gave myself time limits. Like I would not spend more than 20 minutes on the drums. And I wanted to see if I can produce a quality mix, but going faster. So yes, that question is actually a very important question in how I came up. Efficiency always had to be a part of my equation. Always. So anybody that even remotely thinks you got any kind of lucky break is very, (laughs) very mistaken because to me, everything you just laid out tells me a lot about you and a lot about how you created opportunity for yourself by just being badass at even getting a salad. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted everything to be right. I wanted it to be fast. And even going on runs, let me tell you, as an intern, what I would do is, so I had certain friends that went to college in the area and I would call a couple of my friends and be like, I got to do this run for Whitney Houston. Can you go get the order? I'll pay you back, get the order and meet me halfway. So my efficiency train, I would, I'd be able to meet that person right down the street at the gas station, they have the order. They hand it off to me. I give them the money and I'm back at the studio and everybody's looking at me like, how did you get here so fast with this order? No other intern gets here this fast. And they started trying to like test me out and go, okay, we're going to send Leslie to Waffle House and see how long it takes. And I would always come back 10 or 20 minutes faster than the other guy. And they could not figure out how I was doing it. And then I built relationships with people. So for instance, Waffle House, perfect example. There was a Waffle House right down the street from Darp Studios, which is Dallas Austin Recording Projects, the studio I interned at. And I built relationships with people. The same people worked there every day. So I would go in there and I'd say, hey, Miss Carla, how you doing? And I told her my story. She asked me, well, why are you always in here getting food to go? And well, I get it for other people and I work at a studio and I'm trying to come up and I'm just humble and da-da-da and got a relationship with her. And then... When they had a big Waffle House order, I called up there and said, hey, Miss Carla, this is Leslie. You remember me? Okay, I got a really big order and I want to go ahead and start making some of the stuff now. And some people are still looking at the menu, but can we start getting it rolling? Because these are really impatient people. And, you know, she was like, sure, honey, I got you. Da, da, da. And, you know, so Miss Carla became my friend. And I had that kind of relationship to where she would put me first. She would have my bag with all the extra trimmings that I need. I didn't have to say to her because Dallas liked pancakes and he liked a lot of syrup. He wanted a lot of things of syrup. Said it to her once. And then every time she handed me a bag of pancakes, it always had a ton of syrup. in. Oh, waffles. I'm sorry. It always had a ton of syrup in there. 
So it's those kind of people. I can tell Miss Carla spoke my language. Mm-hmm. She knew, well, he's coming in here every day and he tips pretty well. And he told me a little bit of his story. And she is also that kind of person where she wants everything right. She does it. You know, she has all the tricks. You find those people and you build those relationships to help you work more efficiently when you got to do certain things. And I was that kind of guy. I walked into the FedEx place. I was at, you know, back then we used to send everything FedEx, like the the half inch reels to mastering. We would send them FedEx or that's to the label. We would send FedEx. So I got to know all the FedEx people at the location I would go to. I would go to one specific location for Christmas. I bought them all some little things from Kroger, some little cookie things, took them in the FedEx because people just appreciate the fact that you appreciate them. It's not about the gift. It's just... I would always make sure to take Miss Carla at Waffle House a gift. I would take the people at FedEx a gift just so they knew at, at 18, 19, oh, this kid is on it. And they would treat me with the same respect. I would walk into FedEx and it could be a line in there. And then I think his name was Andy, if I'm remembering correctly. One of the guys, Andy, who I would, I would buy a Christmas gift or give him a little Christmas card. I'd walk in there and it'd be a line in FedEx and he'll just wave me over and be like, come over here and they'll handle me right away because they knew I had to get right back. So it's just developing relationships. I, I want to ask you and you tell me, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to like put you on, on the couch here and psychoanalyze you, but <laughs> were you an only child? No, I was the youngest of two. You were the youngest of two. Okay. Yep. So when you left St. Thomas and you came to Florida to go to full sail, you were on your own. There was, yes. there was no family around. Do you yes. think a lot of this emanates not only from what you learned from the adults growing up, but from being alone. Yes. In, in and Florida. I was alone a lot as a child because my brother was three years older. So he was always with his people and I kind of navigated life alone a lot. Yeah. So there's a, it's part survival mechanism, learning how to get along, learning how things work. Because I got to be honest with you, Leslie, I look at my, my time at that age and I'm just in awe of what you're telling me. And I, I'm envious. I wish I had my shit together as much as you did then to have these stories to tell. That's amazing. <laughs> and I, I didn't look at it that way then, but I certainly did have a sense of understanding that I, I knew these basic things, which is if you're just nice to people. I saw people being mean to people. Like one thing that always used to bother me is how mean people are like when they're on flights and at the airport and in public space. And I'm God. just like, why are you so mean? Like, and if you're just nice to people, people have no problem extending a little extra favor in your direction. And when these are people who I got to see every day and I'm always in a rush and I'm trying to get back to the studio, I figured it couldn't hurt to get them all a Christmas card and, and again, I wasn't looking for a perk. I was just, my thing is, I just like being nice to people. And you mm. you always get it in return. And they always look out for you. I can't tell you how many times I'm in spaces where I walk in or I say good morning. Or we were at a hotel the other day, me and my wife. We sent our kids to sleepaway camp here in Georgia. And then we went to Puerto Rico, me and my wife. So I'm walking in the hotel and there was a cup on the ground. And I walk by and I pick up the cup and throw it in the trash. And the, it happened to be the hotel manager. He comes over to me. He said, you must own an establishment. I said, well, no, I'm a audio engineer. We get into this long conversation. And he was like, he then reverted back to the cup thing. And he said, you know, the fact that you picked up that cup tells me a lot about you because you don't work here. You're just a customer. You're just here. But you picked up that cup because something about that cup being 
in the middle of the walkway bothered you and da da da. And what's funny is I preached the same thing to my interns. I actually used to do what I called, and I told him this, I used to do a cup test where I would put a cup in the hallway. And one of the criteria, and it was a major criteria where I knew I was going to hire somebody, if they came in to do the interview, and it was one young lady, she came in, and the first thing she did, she went straight to the cup, picked it up, and threw it away. And I was like, you're hired. <laughs> I, didn't need, I didn't even need to talk to her. <laughs> because it's about your character. It's about what you do, how you do these things, how you see the world. If you see something out of place, do you address it or do you say in your mind, that's not my job? And I was explaining that to the hotel manager. It's not, I know it's not my job to pick up the cup. You have a whole staff of people walking around here cleaning up, but the cup's there and your property is beautiful. Even if we ended this conversation right here, that information you just laid out alone is worthy of a 350th episode appearance because that, <laughs> you know, people just don't, they don't get that. They, yeah, it's not my job. I, you know, let somebody else pick that up. Yep. And what's funny is I actually made a post. I posted something about it recently where we were in a Mexican restaurant and this guy, he comes out, he has like a sport coat on. He walks all the way across the restaurant to pick up some trash that was like a little piece of paper that was on the floor, picked it up, threw it away, and then walked back. The person I was with said, oh, he must be the owner. And I said, why'd you say that? And she was like, well, he walked all the way across the floor to pick up a piece of paper and throw it away. That's why he must be the owner. I said, actually, dissect that thought. He's the owner because he walked across the floor to pick up that piece of paper. His mentality is what got him there. He didn't pick up the piece of paper because he's the owner. He didn't do it because he wants to keep his place clean. He did it because that's burnt into him, and that's what got him there. He's the owner because he picks up pieces of paper. It's, it's a different way of looking at that. Yeah, so it's, I preach that all the time that a lot of times it's a mindset. It's a mindset that gets you there. It's not just doing a specific thing to please a specific client. Because if my point is, if I sit around telling people how authentic would I be, and this is what I explained to the hotel manager, how authentic would I be if I'm sitting there telling my interns all day long, don't walk by trash, take pride in the areas and spaces that you're in. And then just because I'm in a hotel that I don't own, I walk by a piece of trash. That doesn't compute with authenticity to me. So That's right. Yeah. Well, knowing this about you and knowing that you carry this I guess what people would call today being mindful, being present. You were practicing that long ago, and obviously that's taken you through a career of working with some heavy-duty people. Has that mindset been challenged in any way in the time of your career, or has it? have you stuck to your guns and managed to carry that attitude and, and inspire people along the way with that? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I think sometimes people don't know how to take or accept a certain type of person. But I don't I don't necessarily think it's been challenged. I think sometimes people just don't buy into it. Sometimes people, you know, when you say things that come off or sound like cliches a bit where it's like, hey, first man in, last man out, do the extra work. Some people just don't buy into that. Some people only want what they want out of a situation. And it takes people sometimes to see those results and see how that manifests 
things in their life to then come back around and be like, you know what, man, I wish I would have listened to you back in the day when you said X, Y, and Z. Or So I've had those moments too. But I mean, some people just don't buy into it. And, you know, I think consistently the ones that do, they get it. And then there's also people who try to manipulate the people who say, oh, if I do a nice thing for this person, they're going to do a nice thing for me. And that's not the way either. It's 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 just do nice things. And, and you know, it's not about trying to get a reward or trying to get a perk or, you know, it's just be a be a good person. And I think I, I influence more than my share of people mm-hmm. to, to do the right. thing. Oh, you've influenced me today. I mean, I, no doubt. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. You carry with you this this very honorable way of operating, and I and I commend you for it. How do you manage to advocate for yourself when it comes to you put out this great attitude and this great work? How do you make sure you're compensated? Absolutely. And what's funny is I literally just had to send an email last night where I'm mixing this young lady's album, and I start mixing. I mix three songs, and then they're, they're sending me an email asking me for some changes on the first song. And I said, well, guys, I haven't even been paid. And I've made it clear that I don't like to wait on payment. I like my payment either upfront or very soon. And y'all haven't paid me yet. So we need to get that going before. And it, and it wasn't, I didn't come off as an asshole. I didn't like, I just made it clear. Like, hey, look, I worked on these three songs in good faith. And I know you guys, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of the people involved before. So I know it's, you know, what I'm dealing with. But at some point you do have to kind of, make it known, hey, okay, it's time to pay me now. And so I I don't usually have to get into spats or anything. I just make myself clear. I'm just direct. Most cases I get paid up front. There are cases like the case I'm dealing with where because I know the people involved, I know I'm going to get paid. I'm, I'm not worried about that. It's just I always have to make sure they understand the exchange factor, which is, okay, I've already mixed three songs. Let's talk about my payment now. Let's not keep talking about what you guys need and what changes you need. We got to talk about my payment at this point. And so you just kind of make yourself clear. And I think earlier in my career, I I used to take every project and do everything. And you definitely take some losses and all in the name of furthering your career and learning and all that. But now I'm at a point in my career where I'm just like, I actually turn clients down just for the simple reason that I just think it's going to be a headache. Now I'm at the stage in my life where I value peace. And I'm not chasing every check and I'm not, I'm okay with missing out on some money here or there if it means I I retain my peace. My peace is like my most valuable asset to me right now. And my motto has been, and I kind of started this right before COVID. So like in 2019, my motto has been, if it costs me my peace, it's too expensive. And when you mention your peace, you're, you're essentially referring to if you've got to like deal with a major hassle factor with a client. Yeah. If I got to go back and forth with you about getting paid, if I got to go back and forth with you about mixes and you're never happy and satisfied with the mix and you want me to do a gazillion changes and I, and you can see it coming. You know the kind of clients who, you know it's going to be, they're going to be difficult. And if I can detect it early, I'm out. Hmm. And how do you get out? Do you fire them or do you just say, hey? No, I just, and like I said, if I can detect it early before we even start working, I'll just be like, my usually go to excuses, I have my schedule's full or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think I've ever just said, hey, I don't want to work with you. You're terrible. You're mm. a headache. I just, my schedule's full. And then if I get into it and see that a person who I thought was going to be easygoing becomes a hectic client, I just 
kindly, and this happened probably about a month ago where I started working with this kid. He seemed like he was cool. It was through Interscope Records, but the kid clearly had a lot of direction on how his project was going to go and sound. And at first he was cool, mixed the first few records. We had no problem. Then we started getting to the other few records and he started having a million changes and everything was wrong. And then he would change something and change it back. And he would be like, oh my God, it just doesn't feel right. But it was a lot of his production that he was mad at. And at one point I just had to cut him off and say, look, here's how we're going to do this. We can't do any more changes on these songs. This is what it is. I'm the professional. I'm telling you that you know, I've given you a chance to really express yourself through these songs and mixes. But at a certain point, you have to trust that I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. If you don't trust that, and if you still feel like I haven't brought your mixes to a point where you need them to be, I can't help you anymore. You can kindly go get somebody else to mix the records. Hmm. And he was pissed at first, and he told the label, I can't believe he said that to me, and da da da. And then at the end of the day, he ended up, I ended up turning in the mixes to mastering. So... There you go. Yeah. So sometimes you just got to be firm. You don't have a manager, do you? No. I deal with all my business myself. I usually take maybe Mondays and maybe another day out of the week sometimes to like handle business If I, for a little while. Like every Monday I get on the computer and figure out, okay, who hasn't paid? If I need to send out invoices, what's coming up this week? That kind of thing. It takes me all of, I don't think I take more than 45 minutes every Monday to do it. Yeah. And then I'm done. It helps when over the years you've kind of garnered respect and you work with the same people over and over again, like same people at different labels, you know, are calling me to mix records. So they know how I work and they respect me. And it's usually a good experience most of the time with most labels. So I know that this is kind of a big topic and and I'm asking you to encapsulate it, but can you talk about in a nutshell how you have managed your career to the point where you have these relationships at all these labels? To be honest with you, it's just a lot of the relationships come my way. So a lot of times it's, oh, so-and-so was looking for you. They want you to mix a record. That's why I always attribute having a good relationship and dealing with people, making sure you're somebody people want to work with. Because if I have a good experience with a label exec, they're going to want to put me on to their friend when their friend says, hey, man, I got an artist that needs some mixes. You know anybody? And they're like, oh, Leslie, you'll love dealing with him. Or again, the efficiency thing plays in where I got the Cardi B gig because the guy, Daryl, who works at Atlantic goes, yeah, your name was on a short list, Les, because we had to get this album mixed in a whole, in one week. The whole album had to be mixed in a week. And everybody knows you mix quick. We figured you would be the guy for the job. So I mix her whole first album in a week. And now I'm her guy. I mix all her stuff. So Hmm. a lot of times it's reputation. It's people speaking highly of you, people having a really good experience with you and saying, hey, Leslie's a good guy or mixing with Leslie was a pleasure. Or I've had situations where people have had artists that can't work with anybody else and that they always get into it with the engineers and da, da, da. And then I know how to deal with the artists. I know how to talk them down. I know how to finesse them. I know how to not get into arguments with them. And then the ANR goes, Love how you dealt with her. You're her guy. You're going to deal with her from now on. And then you got to do good work, too. I mean, your your mixes have to be good. Product has to be quality. But I think a lot of times in this business, it's also, and sometimes a little more heavily weighted towards relationship, how you deal with people, do people want to work with you, that kind of thing. So I assume that you work off of a bit of a template system. Is that accurate? 
Sort of. I mean, I have my, I don't have a specific template that I just pull up and, but I, I kind of know my go-to plugins. I kind of know how I'm going to treat certain things, but I do try to approach every song individually. I do try to like look at a song and go, okay, what does this record need? And is your setup a hundred percent in the box or is it incorporated? Yes. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent in the box. I used to mix on large format uh, SSL and yep. it took me a while to convert, but I, I, Companies like UAD made it very easy to transition because, I mean, if you hear some of the UAD plugins and you worked on some of the, the gear that the plugins are modeling, you're kind of, sometimes I'm blown away. I'm like, man, this sounds better than the so-and-so <laughs> or cleaner than the so-and-so. And, you know, a lot of guys would tell you, I mean, it's, it's, it's subjective. Some guys love the analog sound and I don't like noise. So if I can get the same sound of let's say a pull tech EQ and I have the option to turn the noise off, that's a win for me. So I just, I don't like noise. I don't like gear because it's just noise. And I love the fact that companies like UAD, a lot of companies though, SPL, a lot of companies stepped up and really, I mean, even IK Multimedia, I use a lot of their stuff. And like a lot of these companies have stepped up and really delivered quality plugins, quality gear, Plugins that emulate the gear that sound really good and, and can get you really great sound and mixes. Plus, it plays into your efficiency factor. Absolutely. Because then, and, and it's great now where I've now narrowed my setup down to, I can take this laptop, these headphones, this Apollo right here, mm-hmm. and then that's my setup. That's essentially my setup. And I throw it in a backpack. And so like when we're in Puerto Rico on vacation, my wife goes to sleep. I'm nocturnal. So it works out where I'm not cutting into my family time because if I got to make some changes or print some mixes, I do it when they fall asleep so that they don't feel like I'm working on vacation. They never even witness me working. So it works out. If I may interject a little bit of personal here. For the audience, if you've listened to this show for a long time, you may have heard me discuss my goal of future work in a portable fashion. It just so happens that Leslie and I both use the identical same pair of headphones, and the setup he's laid out is the identical setup that I have been advocating for for a portable setup in a quality fashion. So once again... (laughs) You're you're validating a lot of my my thought processes to to myself here, so I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's a perfect setup. We're almost out of time, but I want to I definitely want to catch a couple topics on you, and one of those topics is money management, business. After all these years of doing what you've been doing, do you have an overall financial philosophy? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? Do you have a gear obsession? Do you are you buying plugins like every? Every time you get in front of the computer or? I'm a little bit of both. I'm a little bit of a saver. Well, well, I think I'm a saver by nature in the sense of I've realized that a lot of people's, the general public, uh, the general demographic that I'm around for sure, a lot of people spend their money on things that I just don't spend my money on. So for instance, I don't drink. So that's half, you know, that's a lot of cost. People who drink realize how much money they spend on alcohol, like whether on vacation or just in general, like drinking is an expensive thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't drink. I don't drink any alcohol. I don't smoke. I don't do any drugs. I don't do anything. And it's not just the physical drinks or drugs. It's also the lifestyle. I don't go out a lot. I don't go to clubs. I don't go to bars. 
So a lot of that, if, if people were to really add up all of that kind of residual spending, they will see how much they tap into their budget by drinking and going to bars and doing whatever other recreational drugs, whether it's weed or whatever. I just don't do any of that stuff. So I think that helps put me in a certain place off top, like by default. But I do think there's balance. So yeah, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't spend my money on a lot of frivolous things, but I do vacation a lot. I got a family. Uh, you can see my family right here. That's my wife, and my two daughters. I look at it like, look, I mean, there's, there's going to be a time when, you know, one of them is in, the oldest is in seventh grade right now. The youngest just started fourth grade. And there's going to be a time very shortly down the road where they're not going to want to hang out with us. So I'm like, let's get all the vacations in. So we vacation mm-hmm. a lot. We do a lot of trips. So I spend my money there, but I do definitely sensible and understanding the sensitivities of our industry where some years you can have a really good year and some years it could be really slow. Sometimes it could line up that even, even somebody like me who works on a lot of major artists, there may be a year where I work on Cardi B, Beyonce, Pharrell, all in the same year, really high budget, big, big albums. And then the next year, all three of them can be out touring. So that could slow down things in the big client department. And I'm doing a lot more indie projects in that year or whatever. So knowing how the industry is always in flux, I've learned to just manage. You don't, you don't spend based on what you think you're making at this moment. Cause sometimes it could dry up. Sometimes you can go through dry spells. You can make a ton of money in a couple months. And then sometimes you can be dry for four months as far as money coming in. And that's how our industries work. So I try to be sensitive of that, but I also try to live life and have fun. So for me, my money probably goes mostly to private school and vacations. Yeah. That's where my money's going these days. Those vacations, those experiences that the kids won't forget. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our philosophy as parents. Me and my wife both align on, we don't buy them a lot of things. Like their Christmases aren't filled with a ton of gifts. It's more so like the Christmas before COVID, that Christmas, we went on a cruise, went on a Disney cruise. And it was less about gifts and more about let's get on this cruise ship and go experience the world. So yeah, experiences to me are more valuable than, than things. They'll always remember the trips we took. They probably will not remember anything they got over the Christmases when they get a certain age. Here, here. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Do you just work as a person for hire or do you take points on the mixes that you do? Usually it's work for hire. Um, that's just the, the culture and nature of the industries or the certain genres of the industries. Uh, you certain types of music like hip hop, R&B, pop music sometimes a lot of times they don't want to do points. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the pop music side and with gospel or country music or like I've mixed some records for Florida Georgia Line or you know different hmm. different artists. So it, it kind of depends on the culture of the genre sometimes where like hip hop and R&B you just people don't want to give up points and it's usually a struggle and I'm just like, you know what, work for hire and I'll make my rate a little higher and keep it moving. Hmm. Yeah. So, but a lot of it is work for hire. A lot of people aren't bought into giving mixers points and some people are, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. Well, it's tough to track too, if you, especially if you don't have a manager. Exactly. Yeah. So. It's easy to track money coming in and out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then as far as, you know, work-life balance, it sounds, I'm assuming that you, you've got it under control. Well, I will tell you that COVID and the quarantine of 2020 helped me 
really get it under control because before it was still a bit of a struggle because I, I still have a room. I have a studio with the Generation Now guys, DJ Duncan and DJ Drama. They are the guys who signed uh, Jack Harlow, Lil Uzi Vert. So I have a studio, uh, a room there at their studio. But being forced to work from home in the beginning of COVID and, and the quarantine, it kind of really helped balance out my work home life because now I'm here and I'm mixing. This is where I mix right here. And then the kids can come in. My wife can come in. They're here all the time. I actually, it's funny. If you would have asked me three years ago, would I work from home? I would have been like, hell no. <laughs> and now I actually kind of don't want to go back to the studio. I actually love mixing from home. I love working from home. You know, the kids are gone all day. So the house is pretty quiet. It's just me. And my wife is upstairs in her office and she's on the opposite end of the house. And it's actually kind of cool. I like working from home. I like just getting up and not having to put on pants and I can come down and mix records. And, you know, <laughs> I just, I love the the convenience of it where, if, you know, I got a client who happens to be in London or Germany or whatever. And they're like, hey, can you, I was working with David Guetta a few months back and we were mixing the Rita Ora stuff. And he would call me at the most ungodly hours because he's on the other side of the planet. And he'd be like, hey, can we turn up the hi-hat a bit? And I'm like, sure. And I get up, come downstairs in my, you know, my underwear and just turn up the hi-hat and go back to bed. So working from home is super convenient. Love it. it was, what's funny is there's a couple of things about working from home that I wouldn't have been able to tell you had I not experienced it. I actually get more done in less time when I work from home. And here's why. At the studio, there's about 20 people at all times at the studio that speak my language which lends itself to at least eight, nine conversations every day. So I'm at the studio and DJ Don Cannon, he walks in. We could sit there and talk about kick drums for an hour. Or we could sit here and talk about the new Kanye album that hasn't dropped yet. We could talk about that for an hour. Or we can talk about anything musically for about a few hours. And that starts to chunk into your day. And you realize how many hours you waste sitting around having conversations about old school cassettes or kick drums or anything audio. At home, nobody speaks my language. So I'm not having any conversations about audio. So I come in, I mix, get it done, and then I'm back out there watching whatever Disney movie is our, for movie night. Or I'm talking to my wife, or my wife's on the Peloton, and I'm standing next to her talking to her. And Because they don't speak my language. So they don't come in here and want to have 50 conversations about audio or mixing. So I actually get way more done at home. It's actually been a trip of how much more work I get done. Now, when you mix, I'm not going to get into specifics, but just as an overall philosophy, when you're working with a client, ultimately, when you open up a new set of tracks, obviously, you want to get it done and you want to mm. get it done right. But what is your overall philosophy when you're mixing? My overall mix philosophy is because of where we are right now with technology, because of Pro Tools, and it's the standard. Most people record this stuff in Pro Tools. They usually put rough mixes on them so they can hear and love the song. And there's something about that rough mix that they fall in love with the song. So I try to make sure that I don't go too far away from where they have it. Usually when I get a session, it has a couple trinkets on there and reverbs and stuff because they got to hear it a certain way to like it and pitch it and all this stuff. And, and then when the label says, oh, this is ready to mix, they love it for a certain reason. So I try not to go too far away from where they have it on the rough mix. And when I say that, I mean, it's just the 
you kind of look for the framework. I build from where they are. I'm not the guy who gets a session, drops all the failures, takes all the plugins off and start from zero. Mm. I actually build from wherever they are. Nine times out of 10, if they got like, I wouldn't start out using the D verb on something, let's say the default avid reverb. Mm -hmm. But if they got the D verb on there and it sounds good on a specific sound or vocal, I'll leave it. I may sometimes swap it out and be like, you know what, let me use the altiverb and let me use this church or X, Y, and Z. But sometimes if they got a default Avid plugin on there and it sounds okay and it sounds good and it fits the vibe, I'll leave it alone. And then I'll just work on levels and perspective and I might beef up the low end some to make sure the kicks and the basses are, are lining up and that kind of thing. But sometimes I don't go in and just strip their sound out and start from scratch. So my philosophy is I build from where you left off. Excellent. Well, let me tell you something, Leslie. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. You've inspired you. me on many levels, and I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show. I think a lot of other people will be inspired by it as well. Where can people find out more about you? Do you maintain a website or a web presence? I have an Instagram page. It's Lester Bud on Instagram. And then... I'm on Twitch pretty much every night. I'm always gaming. And what I do there is I get on there and I get on there with my nephews usually and we're gaming. We play Call of Duty. But I also, a lot of like the full sales students or young engineers would hop on there in the chat and I answer questions. So my whole thing is I do Q&A while I'm gaming. So a lot of people come on there and in the chat, you'll see questions like, hey, I got a kick drum at this frequency or so on. They ask, sometimes they ask very detailed and technical questions. And then sometimes they ask a lot of questions like the questions you asked today, like, well, how did you get here? Or what was it like your first session? Or hmm. what do you do with a client that doesn't want to pay? Or so I'm sitting on there gaming, playing Call of Duty and answering questions. And it's a win-win because it's like, that's my wind down time. That's what I do. I play video games with my nephews. And then I'm also answering questions. And so Twitch is usually where you find me every night. I'm usually on there like, I usually get on there around 1130 midnight. And we're on there till like four in the morning sometimes. And Wow. How do we, uh, what's the link? Oh, and my Twitch channel, the, it's Lester Bud as well. Okay. Lester Bud is like my thing. It's, you know, my email is Lester Bud at iCloud or Lester Bud at AOL. And my Instagram is Lester Bud. And my Twitch is also, the channel is Lester Bud. Okay. L-E-S-T-E-R-B-U-D. And I got that name because the young lady who used to work at DARP for years and years, DARP Studios, Dallas Austin Studio, in the 90s for years and years, she would always say I look like Bud from the Cosby show. <laughs> and so she would always call me Bud. She would, and how Rudy used to call Bud on the Cosby show, she would be like, Bud. So I would walk in and she'd be like, hey, Bud. And then... Because my name is Leslie, she would always call me Lester. And then she started calling me Lester Bud, and it just stuck. And everybody would call me Lester Bud from, you know, the studio from the 90s. So I just used it as my name for everything, for my emails and all that. <laughs> wow. Well, I've learned quite a bit from you today. And uh, I, I hope that we can meet in person sometime and maybe there'll be a trade show where we can hang out or whatever. Absolutely. But I would love, love to chat with fun. you more in the future. Since you don't drink, I would say, and being that I'm such a coffee fan, I'll buy you a coffee if you drink coffee. Yes, and I love coffee. Well, see, now, 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 we, now we can be friends even more because not only do we use the same headphones, but you like coffee. And let me tell you, if you're not up on it, and this is, 
this may seem biased, but it's actually true. So the founder and one of the owners of Full Sail University, his name is John Phelps. He actually also owns a coffee company in Seattle, and it's called Storyville Coffee. I challenge you as a coffee lover, try Storyville Coffee, and I bet you you will tell me it's the best coffee you ever had in your life. Undoubtedly. Okay. Chal- I'm challenging. Challenge you. accepted. In fact, we'll exchange info on our text, and I'm going to send you a bag of Storyville Coffee. And I promise you, you're going to say, if, if you don't say it's the best coffee you ever had, you're at least... Bare minimum, you're going to say, this is really good coffee. Yeah. It's it's absolutely great. Outstanding. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> God. You, you have some great philosophies and, and you love coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Love coffee. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on the 350th show. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure to have you on. All right. Well, you take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Leslie Brathwaite here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me, not only today, my friends, but episode after episode after episode. I am sincerely humbled by the continued support, emails, texts, social media messages, and everything you all really uh, do to keep me inspired and keep me going to bring you guest after guest with fantastic knowledge to share for all of us to learn from. means the world to me. And as usual, I will continue, just as I always have. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for all your hard work. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song. Thank you for that gift long ago, Cliff. And Chuck Smith, your magical voice always comes through for me. Connect with me on LinkedIn, friends. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>